Hi, this is Matt, audio engineer and producer for I Was Here. This episode was recorded in two spaces that were less than ideal, and the resulting audio is not up to our usual standards. It is still very listenable, and we think it's a really important conversation with some great guests. We just wanted to give you a heads up. Enjoy the episode. I Was Here was created with generous financial support from the Accessibility Project at the G. Raymond Chang School of Continuing Education, Ryerson University. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the storytellers and are in no way endorsed by or representative of the G. Raymond Chang School of Continuing Education. And we found her in a, chur- in a, in a truck. And I had remembered her because she used to uh, line up for my services, and I was unable to get housing for her and many other people. Um, and so I remember, um, I remember actually touching her on the shoulder. She was frozen to death. And at that point, We turned around and we began walking down the alley towards the church again. And a policeman came to me and he said, you know, there's no need to make a big deal about this. This woman was a heavy drinker and that kind of thing. That's what he was referring to. And I, and I said, I don't think so. And I went into the church and I went directly to the telephone. And I phoned as many press as I could. And by the next day, It was a major story. And then we began to organize around it. You are listening to I Was Here, a podcast featuring older adults who have interesting stories about, or long histories with, spaces and places in Toronto. I am your host, Catherine Dunphy. On this episode, I'm talking to Kathy Crow and Beric German. Kathy and Beric have been fighting for Toronto's homeless for 30 years. Longer, actually. It was 1985 when Barrick, a street and health worker, was summoned to a back alley in Toronto's mean streets near Dundas and Sherburne and found the body of Drina Joubert. The former South African model had frozen to death sleeping in a truck. Then, in 1996, three men froze to death on a cold winter's night and Kathy vowed to expose Canada's dirty little secret. Kathy is a nurse who grew up in the suburb of Coburg. She's the heart and the grit. Beric, a high school dropout from Saskatchewan, is brilliant and savvy. With others, they started the Toronto Disaster Relief Committee to bring social justice and housing to the growing numbers of homeless. For almost a decade, they made headlines with their fight, culminating in Tent City, an encampment on Toronto's vacant waterfront of outliers and activists. Kathy has been awarded five honorary doctorates, an International Humanitarian Nursing Award, and the Order of Canada. Beric likes the background. What they haven't got yet is the national housing policy they've been demanding for decades. What they haven't done yet is give up. I mean, it's, we're talking 30 years, but I guess it started for you guys at the Four Corners. Do you want to talk about the Four Corners? It's a very special place in Toronto. Eric, you should go first because <clears throat> you were there first. <laughs> All right. Well, there's a history of the what we think of the Four Corners, and uh, that is Dundas and Sherburne. Uh, 
Um, and the reason we think of that is because historically um, it's, it's a territory where many services evolved in Toronto around not just homelessness, but public housing and services for poor people. It was the largest serviced area in Canada. And I had entered there um, as a young person at 18. I was homeless, and I had entered there in 1966. And I had come from Saskatchewan and hitchhiked there. And so that was my first entry. And there's a whole long history of activity in the territory. What did you find when you were an 18-year-old and, and you arrived in that four corner in, in the big city? Well, I, I, I mean, the first thing I found was a, was a place to lie down in the park. Uh, and I had a sleeping bag. And then some policemen came and ushered me out. And I ended up after that living uh, in a rooming house. I had only a few dollars left. I think I maybe had $10 left. And the rooming house, what they would have referred to as a flop house, then cost $3, I think, a night. So um, that was my first entry. Well, so I, I had worked within walking distance from there, but not really known the corner corners. Um, but I ended up going to work at Street Health, a little agency that had just gotten funding, primarily because I was looking for a, a home for me to nurse in that would be progressive and activist and wouldn't limit me in my nursing, which I had experienced prior to that. And that's where I guess I f we formally kind of met and began working together because Barrick was um, an HIV AIDS outreach worker. And before you met, uh, you had been uh, everything from a cardiac nurse to, uh, you had some, uh, you had yeah, gone public, back and become a nur nurse practitioner. Yeah, nurse practitioner, public health nurse, community health nurse, clinic nurse. But that wasn't fulfilling you. Um, it, it always did initially, and then depending on where I was, it was usually physicians or the actual organization managers and board of directors that really um, restrained and held back being able to work to my full capacity. And so you went to work at the, the church. Mm -hmm. So tell us about that scene. It was an extraordinarily vibrant, <clears throat> dynamic place. Yeah. Well, I, I loved it. It was absolutely... Um, Every single day, really every single hour, my eyes were open wide. I, um, you know, there are stories I tell about my naivety, you know. So, for example, I would see a guy in, in the clinic that might be wearing a shirt that says Hank, but his name was really John. And I would say, well, what's that all about? And he'd gotten his shirt, of course, in the clothing donation room and it was someone else's shirt. And there were small things like that that were just constantly eye-opening. And I remember hearing a lot of maritime accents and not understanding that. As to why they were here. As to why they were here. And of course, as Barrick has said, all roads lead to the big cities in times of, of recession and poverty across the country. So <clears throat> it was, um, we were very welcomed. Um, you know, as a younger nurse, that period of time we were very, we were very respected, very welcomed, um, and it was just like a, a dream, really, because you you got to work fully as a nurse without being held held back by 
other types of workers. <laughs> and and the other thing, I guess, is um, we were expected to do advocacy. We were ordered to do advocacy. Um, and and so that was unusual. So that was like a huge learning curve, just constantly. I can remember being in the basement where our little office was and trying to memorize my lines for when City TV would arrive or something like that, and Barrett coaching me on how to get the message across properly and always strategizing around what can we do next to move the issue forward and come up with a solution. So this is the thing. You guys were <clears throat> definitely had jobs that were meaningful. You were an mm-hmm. HIV AIDS outreach worker. You're a street outreach worker later, and you're a, a street nurse. I mm-hmm. think you coined that phrase yourself. I think no, you was, gave it to the world, no? It was a homeless guy that did. Did he? He, he called it to us, a group of us, as we were walking back to the office one day, and it was meant to be a compliment because people would refer to their best friend as their street brother or an older person that was maybe a mentor or friend as their street father. And so it was a huge compliment. So we we kept using the term as a political act. Got it. So at this point, though, speaking of politics, what was happening at this stage? We're sort of being very vague about the time, but what we're talking about, and I I read somewhere, Beric, that you've been very clear in understanding that when our soldiers came back from the war, one of their rights was housing. Mm -hmm. In fact, they expected so much housing that at some point Toronto actually had a sign out saying, Mm -hmm. don't come here, we have no housing, Mm -hmm. etc. And that this this is how the federal national housing plan started, which ended rather abruptly in 93, and then add to that in 96, Ontario people under the Mike Harris government at the time, Correct me if I'm wrong. Downloaded the the um, responsibility of, of housing to the municipalities with no funding mechanism, and as well cut welfare payments by 21.1 percent at the same time. So this was absolutely a tsunami in mm-hmm. terms of you saw it all come down to that street, and it, the epicenter was the corner, and here you were, and here was this mess. So now what? Now what is it that you're going to be doing well yes and I don't think that we understood any better than people understand today the problems of uh, the loss of a program like the national housing program we didn't understand how it began and thus we didn't understand what would happen when it was gone I didn't know it was cut when it was cut and I was there at that corner Really? Yeah. I look back and I realize when the federal government cut the program, I didn't know. I didn't know. There was no mass protests around it. I knew when Mike Harris cut it, because he also cut 17,000 units that would have housed about 40,000 people. Then I, By then I knew. I guess I'd learned my lesson to watch the news and keep track of things. But um, So it's very important in the times today to to watch these developments, especially as programs are cut. You had come, Beric, you had come face on in terms of what happens with homelessness when you were one of the people who discovered the um, frozen body of a former South African model named Drina Joubert, who had been living in a truck in, in behind one of the flop houses in the in that Dundas Sherman Square. Tell us about that. You were there. Well, yes, I was there, but 
I, I should explain that we had already recognized that there were deaths, and we have never been able to ascertain how many. Uh, we knew there were deaths and injuries, so we were organizing at that point on the corners uh, through the Toronto Union of Unemployed Workers. And uh, we put notices on the walls, and particularly the walls of the All Saints Church, saying that if you hear of injury or death, contact us as quickly as you can. And is that and what happened in the case of Drina Yes, Chabert? it is, because um, I, I, I had a job not just in, in, as a rooms registry person. I would, I would uh, rent um, uh, out rooming house rooms to people, and uh, people would line up. And, and uh, so I was becoming very, very conscious of the problems of homelessness. So we were organizing around this issue, and of course, that's how this happened. I was, uh, I was actually cleaning the church. I was also the, I was also a cleaner at the church, and so there was a knock on the door of the church uh, uh, in 1985 in the evening. Um, I can't remember the actual date, but it was, uh, it was uh, in the winter, and. A young boy came to the door and he said, Sir, we found a woman who has died. And so I, 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 I left with him with another man and we crossed the street and we went down an alley and we found her in a, church, in a, in a truck. And I had remembered her because she used to uh, line up for my services, and I was unable to get housing for her and many other people. Um, and so I remember, um, I remember actually touching her on the shoulder. She was frozen to death. And at that point, we turned around and we began walking down the alley towards the church again. And a policeman came to me and he said, you know, there's no need to make a big deal about this. This woman was a heavy drinker and that kind of thing. That's what he was referring to. And I, and I said, I don't think so. And I went into the church and I went directly to the telephone. And I phoned as many press as I could. And by the next day, it was a major story. And then we began to organize around it. So the two of you at this point understood that you were, this was going to be, or did you understand at this point that this was going to be the cause that has basically directed you and dictated who you are and what you've done for well, the next 30 or 40 years? I was mostly watching as a supporter at that period of time. I didn't work directly on that. I remember going to the Housing Not Hostels march, for example. But I, I know that for sure later on, when we began to face other atrocious catastrophes like that, the three freezing deaths. This was in the winter of 96. Mm -hmm. And this is where the first, and this is where, Kathy, you became more prominent here because there were three men who were who froze to death in a very cold winter in, a, in within one week. And as you put mm -hmm. it, this was the first cluster right. of deaths. And it, it led to what was called the freezing inquiry. The freezing death inquiry, correct? That's that's what we called it collo colloquially. Well, <laughs> yeah, it became, became known as that. Yeah. Yes, which also led you to 
form the Toronto Coalition Against the Toronto Coalition Against Homelessness, which was tw- which were twenty six agencies at that point that got together. That's right, and that was based on the same premises yeah. as our work on mm-hmm. yeah. on the drainage repair. And among the many things that happened in that inquiry, other than reminding or telling many many people living in warm, comfortable homes in Toronto what was happening on the streets because many people you were telling many people for the first time this was the first time that they were hearing that people were dying on the streets of Toronto yeah I I would say that those deaths shocked the nation I mean let alone Toronto it was it was scandalous it was out people were outraged and so we used every opportunity we could to tell tell the circumstances like literally so and I understand one of the main things that came from the uh, inquest was a, a recommendation to establish cold weather alerts. And that's a, this is a pretty big deal. This is a pretty big deal because it basically says that the government's going to take some responsibility and act when the weather becomes inhumane. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then I think it was a year later, Kathy, that you uh, discovered that uh, somebody you knew, somebody you'd worked with, a, a man named Noof, Garland Shepherd oh, yeah. was found dead in an Adelaide Street parking lot. That's right. And this was in with the wind chill factor right. cons- considered it was minus thirty degrees, and there was no cold weather alert. Right. And this, plus the ice storm in Quebec, I think were the two things that started, that led to you guys and many others forming the Toronto Disaster Relief Committee. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of a bunch of factors, you know. The fact I think street nurses weren't able. We were seeing the signs of uh, climate change back then in terms of large populations of people having to try to survive in the winter, but also in these extreme storms and and also in summers. And so we we looked at disaster relief literature, uh, looking how do health workers deal with this in other country. That was another factor. And then I think at the same time, for me, my naivety was. As a nurse, I always believed in the coroner's court process. So for me, just the shock that after a year after the freezing deaths inquest that it happened again, you know, and the city had not done its due diligence, which was simply to call an alert, open warming centers, do all the right things. They hadn't done it. And we have seen that repeat itself. Makes me mad. (laughs) So one February day... At the Church of the Holy Trinity, Toronto Disaster Relief Committee was born. Talk about that day. It was a big deal. So we started in May of that year planning and plotting and writing what was called the State of Emergency Declaration um, and preparing. Gotcha. And so then, yes, it was officially launched October 8, 1998. There were apparently 400 people there in the church breaking fire code rules some media reports put it at 500 first of all this is the first time that people many many homeless people were there Mm -hmm. because they were excited and then there were huge numbers of media and then you had a lot of people there Beric, you were the one who got to announce exactly what your platform was handing out those buttons tell us about that well i think i i i think one of the strategies that we used was to uh, to 
invite people to, uh, to come and to declare, to declare, to have themselves individually declare that homelessness was a national disaster, or that agencies or heads of agencies who were prepared to do so as well, that they came forward and they said, I declare homelessness to be a national disaster. So each person walked forward and declared on a microphone. Was that moving? Yes, it was because it was it it, it yes it it brought us together and uh, and I think at that point uh, after doing that uh, uh, people marched to a, um, a committee meeting <clears throat> at Metro Hall yeah yes and uh, walked into the room and uh, they had already agreed amongst themselves to uh, to take this to council. We didn't think we were going to be allowed in the building. We thought security would keep us out, but our momentum was so enormous. Not only did they let us in, they had already passed a resolution or a statement, and, and then they just very happily accepted our presentation to them of the report. It was astounding. And of course, it was front page of the Toronto Star that morning because we'd given the exclusive to them. So they were reacting to the, the media. So you, they woke up, <coughs> the politicians woke up and read it in, in their, mm -hmm. their newspaper. They mm -hmm. knew it was going to happen, and they were... They were ahead of you in a way. Mm -hmm. Toronto declared homelessness a national disaster, as did nine other cities. Yes, and Toronto uh, did so uh, with a count of 53 councillors to one. <laughs> Can I ask who? Uh, I think it, now again, I think it was Doug Holliday. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, Etobicoke City yeah. Councillor, former and, City Councillor. And, and, and I, as I recall, um, um, you have to remember that what happened too when this when this uh, vote came about was that people filled Metro Hall. People were hanging over the balconies and and shouting, "Get on with it!" and <laughs> and and um, and so the vote came, and fifty three to one, and the one had to be taken out by a security guard. <laughs> 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 no one was going to kill him, but... <laughs> <laughs> so this was the beginning of, of what you call actions. This was the beginning of sort of an era of protest and excitement. You did so much. You were in, on the streets all the time. And every protest always had a breakfast. Mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. was important. Always because a meal. Yep. Always had a meal. Because, because the people who were homeless were themselves a big part of all of your work right yeah and that and so what you were doing at this point is you were marching on national you made national housing day an important day what november 22nd well we created mm -hmm. national housing day you created it when i say we created it what we did was yes we we said uh, that that that, uh, that november 22nd was the day that it would be a national housing day because what had happened was that we we had passed on this this Dynamic to through Jack Layton particularly, and uh, to the um, Jack Layton at the time was a councillor, city councillor. City yeah, councillor. Later went on to become the NDP leader, federal right. NDP That's leader, right. but was then very mm -hmm. much a very active and very very pro uh, fighting homelessness councillor. Yeah. Go on. Yes, and and actually Jack uh, um, cut his teeth on on this issue more so than many other issues that he had been involved in. 
right. and uh, and and uh, became very well known as an advocate for the homeless. You guys were so much into the various out of the coal programs, the shelters that existed mm-hmm. in Toronto, the men's shelter, the one or two, one or two for women, and you were always in there checking out the conditions mm-hmm. of how, you know, when they got inside, what sort of inside did they have? At one point, you. I think got a secret camera videotape in yeah. there and uh, a release really showing the really appalling conditions to the point mm-hmm. where you, to the point where you weren't really welcome in a lot of the shelters the city run shelters and whatnot. <laughs> that's for sure well no yes and we had actually sent a, an interesting camera in and that would have been a former a head of the United Church a former um, um, <clears throat> former moderator former moderator Bruce of the United Bruce McLeod not, when, not technically with a yeah, camera, but with yeah, his eyes. Yeah, and, yeah. Yeah. and Bruce McLeod uh, went in to stay overnight in Seton House. And he went in with Steve Lane, a well-known uh, uh, homelessness ad- advocate. And um, they stayed the evening, and um, Bruce McLeod uh, <clears throat> greeted the morning, or greeted the next few days and re- with an article on what was going on in Seton House. Seton House, we need to backtrack a bit. Seton Mm -hmm. House was the largest facility for housing single homeless men in Toronto. The people who lived on the streets called it Seton House. They were that, they hated it that much. Tell us about what you saw there. Well, it's still the largest men's shelter in Canada. It's not the largest shelter. That would be Calgary Drop-In Centre. So I've been in recently. I finally got allowed to I was barred from there for a while finally got in for a tour recently so it's a big institution and what's really shocking to see it today though is that there have been no upgrades to make it like accessible there are no like push buttons for somebody in a wheelchair to get through a door and what we saw back then though was you know you were probably in it more than I was Barrick but bunk beds like warehousing many people in a room um. Well, we had done actually an inquiry uh, yeah. into um, uh, the problems in Seton House, and it's an interesting inquiry because it in, it came from a complaint by a uh, man who, in his mid- middle age, who had been a computer guy, who became a um, a monk, and he uh, and he began to um, fast to fast. In front of us, and and he said he was fasting because of the violence and conditions of Seton House. Now, no one would listen to him because, in fact, I had contacted media around him, and they said, "Well, the the man's crazy, and we and we can't we can't be following things like that." But we did follow him, and we followed his complaints, and we and we set up an inquiry where not only he testified, but in secret, actually. He, they, people testified in, in front of people in the All Saints Church in the back, in the middle, of, in 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 the night, about violence that they had witnessed in Seton House and the conditions of Seton House. And that ultimately led to major reforms in Seton House. There'd always been chats and talk about reforms, but suddenly, out of nowhere—not out of nowhere, of course—reforms came. And I should point out that both Kathy and I 
uh, unfortunately, um, didn't know what textbooks to read or how to approach these different questions. We had to learn as we, as we saw them, as we, we had to assess them ourselves. And we continue to have to do that to an extent. Hopefully we know a bit more by now. Well, then you, then you decided, one tact that you did was deciding to basically go directly and appeal to the United Nations. Yeah, so I mean, the first time that happened, it was uh, um, the state of emergency declaration and all the disaster documents that were taken to Geneva by um, a couple of advocacy groups on our behalf. Since then, uh, quite a number of separate reports were done under the banner of Toronto Disaster Relief Committee, one looking at homeless women in Toronto. Um, uh, and perhaps one of the most recent was um, uh, was when Maloon Kathari, the UN rapporteur on adequate housing, came to Canada. We, we, we met with him a number of different times to, to show him the real thing. And, and, and the most recent time he came, we I was involved in filming Home Safe Toronto and Home Safe Calgary, the film about families with children, and we created a forum so he could hear children's voices because mm -hmm. that was always being missed, right, because of where we were located. So... We need to talk for a minute, just stop for a minute, and just do a little bit of a, a, a freeze frame about what Toronto was like and what, who, were, who were homeless, where were they, who were they, how many were they? What was it then that, that you were fighting so hard for? What? There was a much smaller population of, of what we term homeless people uh, because, again, uh, we, we didn't understand that homelessness was much larger. It didn't that, include couch surfing and Well, that's right, things. so that eventually you will see some of those people later, but you don't see, the, and, and uh, when we first saw this, uh, for example, um, I can remember working in the All Saints Church, and uh, the place would be filled with homeless people, but it was one of the few places that had such a large uh, number of people in one setting, but, and, in but I, I just want to underline the fact that, that that in that space, at that time in 1984, there was one homeless black man. Mm -hmm. <laughs> of course, <clears throat> only one. Only one. Yeah. It's a miracle. Um, what I remember, and I, I this is, I need you to va validate this. I can remember people sleeping on the Rosedale Valley Road up among the trees and they're underneath the bridges mm -hmm. in big mm -hmm. population mm -hmm. underneath the bridges and yep. in fact it almost became like the young people with the dogs would be underneath the bridge the couples would be I mm -hmm. may be wrong about this so what I'm saying is the the Toronto then that so many people didn't understand there, there was a whole other demographic living mm -hmm. living outside in Toronto, in various places. You you knew them better than I did. Mm -hmm. And there were yeah. so many agencies at the time sprung up yeah. who, who gave, who had vans with soup in them and every night would go on various routes and um, to feed these people, help them, nurse them, give them you know, emergency situation. But it became almost like little settlements throughout yeah. Toronto. So yeah. I compare that to um, the cluster of deaths so there were some things we saw during that period of time. One was 
more deaths, but also clusters of deaths, and then also outbreaks of disease. That's when we, you know, tuberculosis, for example, and then the expansion of squats and outdoor sleeping encampments. So you're describing it perfectly. And then, of course, this overflow from the drop-ins and shelters. And then the squats then became something you couldn't ignore because one of them turned into Tent City, which, you know, at, at its peak was 150 people. So let's talk about Tent City, which really, for reasons good and bad, put Toronto on the international map. Mm-hmm. Media from all over the world, all over the world, came to Tent City. And Tent City started in 98, a 20-year anniversary. And I think TDRC was there almost immediately, providing services and supports. Do you want to talk about that? You were there. Well, yeah, with, with OCAP, Ontario Coalition Against yes. Poverty, we, we got invited in. First of all, we knew a lot of the people because they'd been homeless a long time and we knew them. We should say where it is. Tent, the, the tent city was put, there was some vacant land owned by Home Depot. They had had plans of doing a big box, which had been basically uh, shot down at mm-hmm. Toronto City Council. But there was also at the same time happening, 98, um, Toronto's Olympic bid. And if it had one, then there were plans apparently for the athletes' village to be in this land. So a lot of people were looking at this mm-hmm. land, which is south of the lake shore around Sherburn? Cherry. Cherry, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. sorry. And so this was... But it was empty, and the, the people who finally acted on it were a group of about five people mm-hmm. who, who decided, we can live here. Mm-hmm. Yep. And who so, were they? Um, well, uh, Nancy Baker, <laughs> whose um, picture's on the cover of my book. <laughs> Kathy wrote a book called yeah. Dying for a Home, in, in which uh, the many of the beginning, the, the pioneers of Tent City tell yeah. their own story and Marty Lang, and they had been a couple at one point. Uh, dry, D-R-I, Dry is and we'll, short for... And we'll, we'll talk yeah, about them, because yeah. we want to talk about the people involved. So there were about five of them who well, were I, the I pioneers. Well, I should just pose that, that actually the, that what we referred to later as Tent City, and maybe even prior, actually was an overflow of people that, were, that, that had been on that site uh, sometime a number of years. Yes, they, they had been, some of them had been, uh, and, and if you recall, we had had a test run around the, uh, the waterfront because the um, rooster squat, which we, we had, we were the same right. people who had organized around the rooster squat. The rooster squat was in one of, I think they've since been demolished, one of those huge grain it, towers. It's yeah. actually still there, a silo, one of a grain tower. Yes, yeah. that's right. And, and a and rooster was painted on the that's silo. Right. That's right. And that location... <laughs> Yeah. was predominantly being used by youth. Um, I would say radicalized youth, like they were very strong and strident in, in their insistence on not being able to follow, not wanting to follow shelter rules, and they were quite intelligent, and they were living in decrepit, decrepit conditions. The place was PCB contaminated, wet, and they were, and it was so dangerous to go in. Do you remember, Barrett? Well, yes. <laughs> yes. Dark. <laughs> yeah. Uh, treacherous. Yeah. I remember once going in and discovering a bunch of them in one of the rooms, and the young woman had head-to-toe chicken pox. If I recall, she was pregnant as well. And so it was just like 
a nightmare scenario. So that predated Tent City. And there was an attempt to get tents down there so that they would have a safer place to be in, and that didn't work out so well. <laughs> but what we did do, which you, you'll see the same work oh, yeah. which carried on in Tent City, we managed to get um, trailer. trailers that were on that were, were were going to be shipped to the third world trailers on you know the kind of trailers on trucks. So we had two made uh, trailers uh, brought on site. Prior to that, they were fixed up by by a group of uh, workers. I can't remember who they were, but they were very nice folks who 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 did a lot of work on these trailers to make them habitable. And so the people who were in the in the rooster squat moved from the rooster squat into those trailers. And you'll note later in Tent City that we began to yeah, we will bring do in. that. Yeah. So, so this, the waterfront was almost a, a it, point it, of destination well, for it, many. Well, a lot of people, the shelters were very full as they are today, maybe, maybe even more so. But, and so when shelters get very full, people don't use them. And uh, so the waterfront was a place where people were were, were taking respite. <laughs> <laughs> to use the term properly, <laughs> unlike the new respite shelters the city is opening. So the the uh, tenth city happened. There were a, f- a few people there, <laughs> and then word got out. Well, yes, but what was actually happening was, uh, which we have happened so many times before, is that we were unable to open the shelters. So as, as we were failing to open the shelters, a larger number of people began to enter Tent City. So I don't know how many people there were there when 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 uh, there were, an order came forward from Home Depot to have the people evicted. Yeah. And it was at that one. point that we, with, with the Ontario Coalition Against Poverty, the Toronto Disaster Relief Committee went to a press conference there and, um, and we all said, this is where we stand. We, we were not to evict these people. There is nowhere to go. The shelters are full. Leave them alone. And then, of course, we began to strategize around um, what to do. So in, in Kathy's book, Dying for a Home, there is a glorious description of uh, living day-to-day in Tent City by Nancy Baker and, and Marty Lang, uh, the, one of the, the two pioneers of the thing. And they, they make it seem so idyllic. They talk about um, they had two ducks would come around, yeah. two wild ducks would come around and basically honk them awake very early in the morning. And they gave them names, Daisy and Donald. And these two ducks, and they would get up and there was a communal fire in an oil trauma and they would collect kindling and they'd start the fire and then they'd get the water going and then they would make coffee and then later they would make the water, they boil more water to wash their clothes, etc. So it, they said, Marty in his talk talked about how if when they would go into the city, people would know they were from Tent City because they had that wonderful smell of wood, wood, wood smoke around them. And they talk about this as being, the way they describe it, their true happiness, true community then at the time. 
And they even had a garden. They planted some tomatoes. They did all that. Well, I mean, we must be careful. I mean, you know, we can, we, we can always uh, speak to older people and they'll tell you what great days it was. There, <laughs> there were when there was no electricity and there were no amenities at all. And I think as compared to the crowded shelters, perhaps. Yes. The point is TDRC then decided, and you were the ones who got people, you found two porta potties for them. There was some water running somehow. Mm -hmm. You got some electricity. You got uh, two generators for them. And I think there was unions financed that cost $600 a month just to to uh, do the generators, which were running only between 6 and 9 p.m. many days. You were trying to get as many amenities as mm -hmm. possible in there to make it work. You forgot the wood stoves. Yes, the, the wood, wood stoves. We, we the purchased, stove. uh, I don't know how many wood, like... We purchased a wood stove for every shack that we could put them in and duricate. And then we brought in the prefab houses. Yeah, too. we're going to get to that because okay. that's a big day in, yeah. the, in the history <laughs> of. So we're talking now, um, 1998 is when it started, but I believe we're in 1999 now when the duricates uh, arrived. And Barrick, this is something that I know you have, you had, this was on your mind for many, many years before it actually happened, that winter day very cold winter day when the Jura kit arrived. Talked of what, what it is. It was a $2,500 kit, uh, small prefab housing that was Canadian made for use in disaster, international disasters, yeah, yeah, ironically yeah, enough. Yeah, yeah. And you were the one who under, who knew about it and said we could use it here in Toronto. Well, we, we were lucky enough to uh, to meet uh, quite interesting people who had very little to do with each other prior. Uh, and they would help us in different ways. One, of course, was financial. Um, others were political. Um, and we were basing uh, our movement partly on things that had happened a long time ago that we were breaking the ban. There was actually a ban on the support for these people. They wanted them out. Let's get them out. And we said, no, we're not just, we're, we're not just going to stand here and, and have a protest. We're going to collect, we're going to get people together and bring aid to these people and, and, to, and to say, look, as best we can, you're going to stay here. And we, we call for, uh, for better housing than this. But you're, you're, we're going to do everything we can to make it comfortable for and you. And what you did was Duracit. We did do Duracit, yes. We, we, did, we, we managed, I can't remember who told us about Duracit. I think it was actually David Walsh. Probably. Um, <laughs> we got it for a dollar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got it for a dollar. And, and we had a duplex. One was the first one that we brought in was a single unit. And then the, I think the next one was a duplex. Yeah. So it, it was quite yeah. unique because to, to bring in, I mean, to have aid like that come in, and we, when we come in with trucks and the big house on the back of the you, trucks. You made sure that media was there. Yes. Were there. <laughs> yeah. And it was a very, very cold day. And it was very dramatic because this huge, long truck pulls up with this building on it and there mm -hmm. was some kind of a crane, a crane? Yep, yep. A crane. and uh on the building you had very cleverly a banner 
that said disaster housing. Yep. Yes, yep. disaster housing banner on mm-hmm. it. The thing was raised way up in the air. The television cameras thanked you, I'm sure. And then all of a sudden it landed down. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. around and at this was the, were, was the couple who had been assigned this house. Yes, that's, a, that's the second group of housing that we brought in. The, the, the big, one of the first moves that we made on the chessboard there was was uh, to, was to, uh, um, to 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 come all together with all of this aid I think in fact I think the biggest move we made was actually Christmas which this was a Christmas it was Christmas event. yes that's right um, and that's where we brought in two and if sorry it's hard to recall sometimes yeah. we brought two of them in on mm. on the on the backs of trailers and we brought in um, and we brought in um, cranes to move them off and it an interesting point is that when we were bringing when 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 this whole event was to happen uh, we had to we had the big trucks that were coming and all of the rest and and of course naturally Home Depot knew about it and uh, and on the day I was walking from my home which isn't that far from from there I live in the Esplanade area and uh, I got noticed I, I got called from uh, a radio station and they said look at what has happened is that they put cement blocks on the road Home Depot had. they're saying I don't, I don't know who okay, they said did it, but did. they said okay. they, they put these blocks on the road and and thus you're not going to be allowed to enter and so you know having a little chutzpah on 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 my part i said no get them out of there or we'll move them we're coming now and we did we you you move them yes mm-hmm. essentially jack jack layton began to negotiate with home depot and then one of our cranes moved forward and lifted the the big cement piece out and then the big trucks the big trucks came in with the cranes to, to in, in and um, and we had a I, I think at, on that day I think we had a big uh, we had turkey dinner turkey dinner <laughs> yeah. okay so what I what I'm trying to get at is a sort of segue into telling remembering who some who the people were who lived there right. who the neighbors were right who were they and Brian Brian Boyd and you write beautifully about Brian Brian Boyd and and Karen Brian especially took it upon himself. He was grateful for that, um, that housing. I remember, and this is not supposed to be about me, so you remember next. I remember Karen taking such good care of that place. When, as a journalist, I would go in, it was immaculate, better than my home. She, there was definitely point of pride there. Mm-hmm. Brian Boyd, um, took his duties as a spokesperson yeah. very seriously and he made himself available to media no matter yeah. what or where and I watched him I I as media would go down there and sometimes knock on the door and you knew you were waking them up and you knew it had been a rough 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 night and you look at them and I watched him will himself together because he was going to stand up and he was going to make sure that the message B 
be brought, mm-hmm. that they are fortunate, others aren't, this housing is needed, etc. Yeah. And that's what I remember about him as being the first recipient. Yeah. You know, I mean, he was a real leader there, as was Marty and Marty Nancy Dry. There was a core group, including Brian, that they just knew how to talk about the right to housing for everybody and that here they were fighting for it and, and and getting it to a certain extent. It was down on the waterfront and it was an encampment, but that they were part of the fight for all Canadians. And, you know, they often took part in some of the trips we did when we would go to London or Quebec City for the housing ministers' conferences and speak. And, like, I don't feel like we ever prompted them. Or, I mean, we we had other political discussions with them throughout our relationship with them so they were they were pretty core you know they were they were they they understood and and then when around the olympic bid we held a big press conference at one point on the day of the decision around the olympics and of course they could talk about that as well they could talk about should should spending go to sports when we still have this crisis in the city you made sure that they were up front that they were speaking about what they were living and and what they believed in, that you weren't speaking on behalf of them? Well, no, except that we would have to speak on behalf of some people because we're, you know, we're, 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 we were the receptacle of, by that time, maybe thousands of people's stories. Yeah, but I, I mean, I, I think we always talked about making sure their voice was included. Oh, yeah. Press conferences always included them and, They, they came to City Hall to be a major part of the committee. And yeah, yeah so. And the thing that I want to say is when I say the world was watching when the Jurek had arrived, mm-hmm. the world was watching. There were crews, there were camera crews from Fra- France. There were camera crews from Germany, I believe. There were Americans there. There was all kinds of media watching. Why? Well, I think... Um we continue to learn that this phenomena is not restricted to Canada. This is a huge worldwide phenomenon that, that, um, that people in Canada and around the world had faced before. Again, I say that we weren't as knowledgeable about these issues prior, but we are now. So in the 1930s, there was a crisis like this. There were something like 200 people would be sleeping in Allen Gardens. And they fought it, and they fought well. I understand that it was almost a precursor of Occupy now, in some ways. Well, yes. I mean, we're seeing all kinds of reaction to to the scenario of people losing their housing, losing their income, losing their health care, because these are all tied together. This is not a separate issue. That was what we begin to understand better is that housing uh, wasn't just housing, that the loss of the national housing program, which was similar to the uh, to our national health care program, uh, was devastating to the whole country. And, and the loss of such programs or the cutback in such programs or austerity programs in Europe have, cr- have created um, the same types of problems. So... So back to the day-to-day thing, mm-hmm. it in, and I hear you. Mm-hmm. Back to the day-to-day thing at Ten City. So at one point, there was a self-proclaimed mayor 
so that was Carl, who, um, he probably had the most elaborate house that he shared with a fellow named Tom. He built it himself, had the German flag flying above it. Possibly upside down. I think the East German flag. Oh, the or, East German okay, <laughs> Flying <thank you>. upside down. <laughs> Derek is so good for this detail. It was, um, and, and he had built his own latrine, which engineering-wise was very complicated because of the water table because of where, where it was on the, right by the waterfront and um, pretty sure he had electricity somehow and it was quite it was a multi-room house <clears throat> um, yeah so Carl became the self-proclaimed mayor of Tent City and there was a movie made about him um, and he also was one of the leaders for sure and um, I mean how could you not? So going back to your question about international attention, how could how could it not have happened, right? Because of the characters that were there, and it was a modern day refugee camp, if you will, right smack in downtown Toronto. Mm -hmm. So, I really attribute, I mean, our activism, their activism, but also the international media to the win that happened at the end. You know the win of when after they were evicted, people yeah. getting housing. So you do think that was a very deliberate strategy? Keep the eyes of everyone right on this well, exactly. Well, we we did, and it wasn't always easy. Like I could look out my window and see Tent City. That's how close I lived to Tent City. And one day I looked out my window, and Tent City was burning, and it was <laughs> a big burn of rubber tires that was there. And um, so we sometimes, Barrick and I, had to go down and be like the mom and dad saying, sometimes you don't want media attention on Tent City. I mean, we had to, not very often, but occasionally, you know, remind them that this is the image you have to present. Hardworking, you've built showers, you know, you've got a church here, you're running the generators, you're planting, like we didn't. It was a an anomaly when that happened, but yeah, I don't. I don't, I, it, it, I don't think people understand easily that putting a group of people, say, of 150 people together, whoever they might have been, <laughs> and they are all suddenly to live together, and uh, that's not easy for anybody. I think uh, in the co-op movement, for example, the cooperative housing movement. It's been an ongoing theme that there have been all sorts of conflicts in the beginnings in the first couple of years, terrible conflicts. Nice. So that would be true, too, in this little small town, which, didn't, uh, which was similar to, uh, to, pioneer, to a pioneer town. You used to have weekly meetings, yeah. and you were the head, mm -hmm. too, and, and everyone mentioned the fact that at weekly meetings, there was Kentucky Fried Chicken served at every weekly meeting. Yeah. But talk to us, what were, you, what were you doing in those weekly meetings, and who came? I'm not sure it was weekly, but, uh, yeah, but was it? Well, well, it, well it, it was, they were reg, fairly regular, regular meetings yeah. because we had to, there were things that we would be discussing, such as should we be bringing in other Dura kits? Should we be bringing in uh, toilets? What are the problems of the toilets? Are the toilets... Uh, kept clean. All or kinds people, of local yeah, issues yeah. would have to be discussed um, amongst us just to survive. 
survival kind of question. Yes, and but you were there talking with people who were representing their their neighbors in yeah. Tent City. Yes, literally yes, outdoors yes, yes. around. It would be a core fire group. burning, literally, and and Danielle Koyama, who worked with us really, really closely at Tent City. She and I would go up and pick up the KFC, and she's vegetarian, and the smell of her car by the time we arrived with, you know, Kentucky Fried Chicken for, what, 50, 60, 70 people. It was like, oh, but that was what they wanted, so that's what we bought. And there there be, I remember there being huge agendas um, of problems to solve, and also for them to tell us issues that they wanted us to fix or that we didn't maybe know about, and... A lot of it. I had the toilet file, so I was in charge of all the toilet issues. And, um, you know, we had big union support, too. So when something came up that we needed help for, we could get help from unions to pay for it. And, and then there then there'd also be the strategizing about next step. Okay, we're going to be going to Quebec City for this rally, or we're going to be doing such and such, and really important that you come. And, you know, the Quebec one, that was when uh, Michael Shapcott... Uh, argued for Dry to be a speaker at it because we hadn't had a speaker from Tent City and um, it was important, yeah. And it became very important that someone from Tent City be at all the events. I mean, they were. It was become a, very much a linchpin to a movement. And you were a movement at this point. Yeah, you were a movement. So then, nine eleven. Oh, nine eleven happened. <clears throat> Big day in the world, um, but also. A big day at yeah. Tent City. A lot of people mourn the end of it, but uh, you guys were there. So continue and talk about, Kathy, you were had heard about it. You yeah. raced down. when you By the time you, you were there a little early, but hundreds of people came down. Hundreds of people in Toronto mm-hmm. cared enough guess, to come down. I just want to say that, um, you know, I'm not, I'm pretty sure this applies to you, Barrick. We were, we were kind of on edge for many, many weeks weeks anticipating it so I I slept with my cell phone by my bed for example we were we were anticipating it and we had had increased signs of police pressure um, on Tent City for example Um, the mayor was driven through once uh, I on a you know driven through and police would cruise through and mouth off remarks inappropriate remarks you know to folks that were living there so we were really on edge like we could we could feel the vibe changing. So then when it happened, we were still shocked. But then we went into rage mode in responding. And so I had arrived early and I had been given notice uh, that uh, the invaders would come, that they were on their way. But upon arriving, there was nothing there. Nothing, no, no sounds, no people, nobody was up. And I went down there with Gaetan Haru, actually, because I had been given notice at work, and I left a meeting at work to go. So, as I said, Danielle Koyama was there with me. She had a car, and I asked her to go somewhere in the country, just drive around outside to see if she could find out which way this, this invasion was going to come from. And so she went away, and... She was gone, and I and I started to go around to individuals and wake them up in Tent City and say, "Look, uh, it looks like we're in trouble now. Get ready. There's there's going to be an invasion here." And people didn't really believe me. 
So I walked back to, started to walking back towards the gate and suddenly the convoy entered the gates. And it was a convoy of, uh, of security guards and, and vans and all the rest. So as soon as I saw that, I, I walked in front of the first van and I stopped it. I put my hands on the front of it and he had to stop. And then a policeman took me and grabbed me and, and, and escorted me out. And then, uh, and it was then that larger numbers of people started to trickle in. If I recall, I think even Bill Blair was there. But, so Edwin, and I imagine he would have been, this would have been a major event. Everybody had to answer at this point. And so he was the, he was the um, police chief. Police chief then, or fifty one division head. Yeah, if I recall, we had a few words. But yeah, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, so when all of the rest of the people came, we began to coalesce together. We began to to protest what was happening, and 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 as we were protesting, people were being removed. And these were people you're saying from church groups, from unions who have mm -hmm. supported you, people yes. who yeah. have just yeah. been down visited, yeah. Yeah. regular seniors, yeah. seniors from the St. Lawrence neighborhood, yeah. frontline hundreds, workers, hundreds nurses, of them. executive directors of organizations came out. Wow. Yeah, it was huge. Yep. And as we were protesting, we were also being fed information. So, for example, media would come up to us and say, Mayor Lassman says that there are 200 spaces in the shelter system that people can go to. Of course, we knew that wasn't true. And so we began countering and just it was kind of a continual flow of information. And meanwhile, people were literally in crisis right in front of us, crying on the ground, sitting, hugging each other, consoling each other, crying about their belongings left behind, losing their home. Yeah. And they were angry. And at that point, there was uh, a, a press conference set uh, to be held by um, Home Depot. And that was going to be in the King Street uh, Hotel, right beside the TIFF building, the film festival building where it is now. Um, so we, we eventually gathered ourselves together, and I think we went well, first to council chambers. Yeah, and Ontario, the Ontario Coalition Against Poverty was rather key here because they had always supported us, at, at, particularly at key times. Yeah. So they could mobilize groups, and they, they had mobilized as well. And so that when this press conference was to happen, uh, we all moved on it. And it was a big move up, up the escalators mm -hmm. and moved towards mm -hmm. them. And that was the end of the, of the press conference, no press conference. <laughs> so, and by the end of the day... Uh, People had come together. We 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 then entered uh, council chambers. I can't remember exactly what was happening in council chambers at the time. It was a council meeting. I guess it was a council yeah. meeting. Yeah, and we just shouted and said, yeah. we "said Look it, yeah. you've you've evicted the people of Tent City. That's what has to be discussed here." And we broke up their meeting, mm -hmm. and then we start. We had we had a. They quickly put together a meeting with Shirley Hoy. Uh, who was the the general manager? Yeah, the general city? manager. Yes. Yeah. Something like that. It's something Chief like that. CAO. That's right. Yep. CAO, chief yep. administrative yep. officer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you got a meeting with her. They wanted a meeting. They wanted. It was a. It was a. To, to say the least, it was a tense moment. 
The other problem, though, you were fighting on two fronts. Yes, you were definitely saying, this is wrong, you cannot do this. On the other hand, you have 150 people without a place to sleep that night. Yes, and that was the kind of negotiation that was going on with uh, with her administration. We had to get a place for them, and, and thus they had to provide one. And so it was interesting that one of the people who ended up uh, uh, administering some of the spaces, which ended up Jimmy Simpson uh, Hall and all the rest. Wood Green. Wood Green. Well, the Wood Green, yeah. Wood Green and, I think, Jimmy Simpson, ultimately. Um, uh, sorry. A senior's moment. <laughs> the person you're trying to think of who it is? Yeah. It was actually the head. Who was the head of, of the of hostile mm -hmm. services uh, that would have been... Um, Somebody named Brown. Phil, oh, Phil Brown. Brown. Phil, Phil, Phil Brown. Brown. And Phil Brown had to had to administer this in almost himself he was he was there and, and he and he was in charge of a lot of that i mean i think the anger was so huge that within a very short period of time that day we convinced them that there was no way there was no way that this community was going to be split up and put into one shelter bed here one shelter bed there and there were not 200 empty shelter beds so they had to be together they had to be protected and stay as a community and so wood green was opened and to operate an emergency shelter and you know some people that night uh, couldn't sleep inside they slept out in they slept in the park structures in the park Behind Jimmy Simpson Community Center, yeah. What you did, though, there was something big that was accomplished by that, because as a result of which you did the rent supplement program. And housing was found that took the people are still living in the housing. Yeah. Well, I think the difference in, in the subsidy program, and I guess it's not so different from some of the subsidy programs today, but at that stage, Subsidy programs were only in 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 almost in Toronto housing and in and in uh, uh, sorry in public housing and in co-ops. So the idea that you would have uh, um, uh, subsidies for private housing and that 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 you could change housing if you needed to that changed later and would be very problematic. But um, that this was new stuff. It was new stuff, and it was important because some of, I mean, pe people who had lived in Tent City for the first time now were having their own place. Yeah, I mean, it took a few days to win that. I remember I was supposed to fly to Halifax or something the next day after the eviction, and I remember delaying it and then going and coming back, and by the time I came back, it was negotiated, and it was a pot of money, apparently, that had been kind of sitting there, and it was used, and Sean Gadden navigated that on the city's part to to win it and but it was a precedent nationally as Barrick's saying we were used to it being in social housing um, but showing that if you provide it you can house people quickly and of course then attached to them were housing workers and Barrick was very involved for many years in following that pilot and also navigating system issues with the city because there were always problems on the other hand, the work of TDRC didn't stop. I mean, you were still having actions. There was always um, issues. Kathy, you were fighting in terms of the health issues, as you you mentioned, the tuberculosis. Mm -hmm. the, the The shelter system within the city wasn't great. It, it continued not to be great, and so you were you were still doing many many actions. Were, were you not at that point oh, after two thousand and two? Oh yes, we continued. We we tried to continue. Um, 
tried. You did. Well, we did. Yes, of course <laughs> we did. We, 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 we knew the game better than a lot of others, and we, we have tried over the years to pass that on. It wasn't passed as easily to us when we were younger, and so we've tried everything we can to pass that on, by, but also to show example that, yes, we, we, would, uh, we, we would stand there. and Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Until 2012 when I guess you took a deep breath and decided that that TDRC could no longer operate. You want to talk about how and why that ended? Yeah, Barrick and I disagree a little bit on this, so you'll hear versions. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So 2012, but in a way it was really more like 2013-14 because the legacy... Part of the legacy remained and some of the players still remained. So we still in some ways continued to do some of the stuff we used to do just without the structure of Toronto Disaster Relief Committee. Um, So my memory is that I had wanted to close it. We had talked about it a few times and then we didn't. We we realized we didn't. We just shouldn't have the right to close it because nothing, things were still so bad. Um, And... So burnout definitely played a factor. Um, Also, TDRC as a group was aging and people had life-threatening illnesses and and died, a couple people. Um, But there was also a huge challenge for donations because this was following the 2008 recession and both unions seemed to be in trouble, but also just generous individual donors that had supported us for so long. Um, and we had built up a structure where we had essentially three staff. One was kind of part-time, but in an office and rent and everything cost, right? We did things really cheaply, but it cost. So I, I put it down to a lot of those factors. Barrick? Oh, I think those things are all true, and I think that just to do with the type of organization that we that the TDRC was, um, organizations like that do not generally last fourteen years. They just don't. Um, you're not going to make an extra buck from doing it. You can have a lot of trouble, and uh, and it's a, a very high stress level. Uh, you you will understand well why you're needed because uh, many of us had learned to become seasoned activists and we didn't do this for our health. We did it to make sure something happened and it generally did happen. Something happened and it would be often for the better. And thus there'd be tremendous guilt on our part to know that we were some of the few that had that kind of skill or a positioned or had the positioning to be able to do some of that kind of thing. And yet it wasn't on true that we might have to step aside at some point for differing reasons. And I think all the things that Kathy says are true. Um, but it was also true that we wouldn't have had the same energy and, and we needed a young blood to come and the young blood didn't arrive as yet. Mm-hmm. And and again, we've been very fortunate because we were able to last as seasoned activists both before TDRC and after. And people like uh, like OCAP have lasted much longer than an organization like that 
in normal terms can ever do. We weren't the old political movements of the 1930s. 1930s had many thousands of people involved and they won huge battles and, and, and they had access to people just giving money to them and, and getting them, keeping them going as long as they could. They're dead too now. Long before we arrived, they were dead. Um, so yeah, I would say we were sad and we were, and we were, and, it, and, and, and you wanted to also know that, yes, we suffered tension, extreme tension. Well, and this took a personal cost. You, you've been fighting for decades. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I feel horrible that we shut down. I really do. <laughs> but, and I tend to, um, I tend to diminish the point Barrett just made about, you know, the, the lack of energy and the, the aging piece. <laughs> well, she can carry on now. <laughs> She's a little younger than I am. <laughs> but, um, but also the period of time when we shut it down, I was unemployed too. So, and I remember spending, and I was essentially the one that shut down the office and put what's described as nine meters of archival material into boxes with my extraordinarily good filing system <laughs> combined with staff that had done it. I'm the one that deposited all that in the archives. It's all in the City of Toronto archives. So I'm very proud of that. And I've gone back to visit. I go back all the time to look at the material because it's so relevant. And I'm going to take you soon, Barrett, to, to see That's it. Right. And we pull out files. And so when the Toronto Star recently did their big investigation into homeless deaths, they came to the archives with me and went through two boxes, two whole boxes of material on death, right? Mm-hmm. And that's the other thing. There's a, I just, but the personal cost, both of you took time out. Both of you mm-hmm. had to walk away at times because of the stress of this fighting and fighting and yeah. fighting for something. And, and something new would turn around and hit you in the forehead. Or somebody else you knew and loved died. Mm-hmm. This stuff is normal. We, we don't, people who do uh, things at different, there are times, for example, when everybody's in the street. Everybody's doing stuff and they're humping and the whole world is changing. And then there are times when there's silence and a couple of people are out there shouting and getting angry and maybe even having success. But if they're too much alone and they're, and, and, and all the rest and, and there isn't, aren't, the resources aren't there, it, it, it can be a lonely place. And so uh, I, I had known that a lot of uh, people that I have known over the years uh, have become ill, and I became ill. I, I went to a hospital. I went to a mental hospital for a month. And others that I know who have been activists have had similar um, things happen to them. And that's okay, you know, if you go to to battle you you might get wounded and you but you know what makes me mad about that is that a group like ours had to scrounge for money you know and and we're in the same position today with uh some other groups and <laughs> i think it's just shameful well you see we do see these things we see the people who are going to carry on and whatever and and we do work with people yeah. who carry on um, the issue, as we know it uh, now, and it took a long time for us to get to know it, is not only not resolved, 
we could easily say that homelessness will increase exponentially because it hasn't been dealt with and, um, and the dynamics that are at play are pretty horrific. And we did not understand that at that time and we understand it better today and as seniors, we will attempt to ensure that some of that knowledge is passed to the new organizations and to the new groups. The situation is opening up as we speak and some of the people who are working around homelessness, that is absolute homelessness, are saying the violence is just opening up in the streets everywhere. The, the drug use for people are killing pain. And, and now we've got fentanyl. So we've seen people using the activists that we know who are working around drug use, and we know them. We've known them over the years, and, and uh, they are the new, some of the new world order. And, uh, and, and, and they, they carry on. It's not as if you gave up. I want to go back and I just want to, for the record, let's talk about some of your victories. I think to talk about the homeless memorial as a victory might seem callous, but for me it is because it's a permanent, it's there, and it's um, an important document that is out there in the air for the public to see, which was, again, your your initiative. The, the, the heartbreaking part, of course, is the names continue to be added. What are we up to now? I'd like to do a count. Somebody, uh, we're, I think we're at 1,000. I have to do a count because I have to put yeah. it in my book, but yeah. we're easily at 1,000 on, yeah. on the list. You were the ones who, who raised the ruckus about bedbugs. You were the first people who did that. Eric even brought them in a little jar to the Board of Health meeting one day. When That's right. I was a Board of Health member. I really enjoyed that day. <laughs> I, I, I had a little vial, and I had them in the vial, and I eventually passed it on to some people that were working in the CBC. Now, at that stage, people, bedbugs had been with in history with us for a long time, but they'd gone away for a while. They weren't supposed to live in Toronto with That's us. That's right, they, 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 but then we, they came back. <laughs> they did. You did that. You back. fought. You fought for the special diet allowance for for people who were now that key. It's key to to give the credit to, to, to give the credit to okay. Okay, yes, yeah. but you were that you did join that. Well, oh, of yeah. course, we yeah. we always we most of us joined with each other in our absolutely. Yeah. There was a there were times when there were moments when the police were going around handing out tickets to anybody who was uh, sitting and having a beer in a park or lying down and giving them hundred and thirty dollar tickets for loitering. You were protesting that. Yep. You were handling that. You found yep. lawyers for mm -hmm. them. You had uh, the time when Kesos proposed to ban panhandlers. Kesos yep. was a conservative yep. uh, councillor uh, that he he wanted to ban panhandlers in mm -hmm. downtown mm -hmm. um, tourist spots. So you had a million little fires mm -hmm. that you kept putting out and each little fire was contributing to a violation of the dignity of people who mm -hmm. were living outside which was part of your motivation. So Clearly, I want to say to you that there, um, and then of course your your final fight up until last year was to get the Moss Park Armories open as an emergency. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, and and you you might recall that we were the initiators of the of the Moss Park Armories opening. Yes, um, in the past. In, the, in recent history. In, in recent Fort, history in and in and Fort York. Yeah. yeah. 
and Fort York yes. in in the in the ninety in the early two thousands. Yeah. We've actually yeah. gotten a lot of new shelters open. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There are many Margaret shelters, Hospital, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Doctors Hospital. Absolutely. Yeah. To me, the final legacy could be the most recent news, which is the City of Toronto announcing their homeless. Uh, proposal thing and and where upon well you not don't look odd they're going to have be this winter three mm-hmm. three mm-hmm. new mm-hmm. prefab respite centers each of them costing 2.5 million dollars mm-hmm. mm-hmm. so there will be a roof over another 155 or so people's well it's actually even more remarkable than that because up until last year we would have up until last winter, we would have maybe one 24-hour winter warming center. And then last year, they changed the language to call them respite sites. But what happened last winter was they couldn't close them in the spring because we were pushing, people were pushing and advocating that it wasn't just a cold weather need. And, and so they kept them open through the spring through the summer, they had to juggle the sites a lot. They used arenas for a little bit and they moved people around a lot. And now we're gonna have 11, it'll be 11 24 hour respite sites mm-hmm. open 24 seven. Now, Barrick believed in calling for these dome type structures a long time ago, TDRC did. Do you remember? Yeah, sure. yeah of course, because that's kind of disaster relief. It's the kind of prefab that you can just put up, although they're not putting two of them up very fast. It's gonna be till end of January. And uh, there we I got to tour one of them back in May, and they're very impressive. It's gonna be better than some of the hellish locations that they used last winter that we also got filmed again. We keep using that pattern of film inquiry. Yeah. Expose. <laughs> yes. You know? and, and we should add to that. I mean, yes, we did. We, Kathy and I particularly helped with the, we helped OCAP, who were the main instigators and the main movers and shakers around this, around the shelters right now. So we had helped them and we had brought in, uh, we, we, we entered the shelters with a, uh, a camera person who took shots. Uh, and I can remember when we saw his, some of his footage, he said, I think he said something like, Holy shit! Or something like that, <laughs> maybe worse. And and uh, um, and then we got uh, um, uh, Sarah Polly, who had worked with us uh, before, the actress and, it, and director. Mm-hmm. That's right. And so we had met with her, and we took her into the into some of the uh, what they think they refer to as the respite one of the respite centers, and just said, okay, um, just look around and walk back out, and and. Um, and say what you saw, and so tell your an and tell your friends, yeah. and and we want them to say something about and it. She wrote an op-ed that ended with the line, "Mayor Tory, open the damn armories." Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. <laughs> and that's they right. opened within days. That's right. So in reality, um, um, OCAP was bothering um, the mayor a lot. Yeah. And the mayor didn't want to be put in a position uh, at which. Uh, um, Mel Lastman had been put in. Uh, he did know that he'd better respond. He'd uh, he he they OCAP and the rest of us were riding him, and um, and so when he went to attempt to become mayor again, um, I think he I think in my mind, I think he thought that he should answer part of our call. 
Well, he did it another way too, which I think must be even more satisfying for you with this acknowledgement that a new system of operating had to happen, that there's some guy in charge of it. There's an acknowledgement that there were that the numbers were wrong, that they weren't reporting any vacancies, that people were outside and not being let in last year, that all of the stuff you have been saying for decades has been acknowledged and money is being spent to fix it. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's true. The, the very saddest part of this story is the story is not ended. And, and, uh, and, uh, What's and so, sad is that they will, in my opinion, they will not be able to close any of those sites. And what does that say about Toronto and Ontario and Canada? Yeah. The numbers of homeless people, that is who we, and the numbers of people suffering, because, because hidden in all of this is, is the other story. That is that long before you hit the streets, you are maybe living in intolerable circumstances and you may be short of food and all of the rest. A recent study that said that 200, there are 250,000 children in Toronto uh, who are below the poverty line. With, uh, if you think in those terms, you can only imagine another lost generation. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so uh, when we had the first welfare cuts and the housing crisis and all of the rest, um, a number of years ago, I don't think that there's any accident at all that we have a lot of gun violence and violence today, and there's been a lost generation. And if we want more, then we continue along this road and maybe we can make it even worse. The point being that, that there are dynamics at play that cannot be dealt with by shelters. We do, we, we fight for shelters because people face disaster. We know the ultimate, the ultimately just to do with housing and, and to make things better for people, a number of other a national housing program similar to a national Medicare program have to be implemented. That means that we need housing, public housing, social housing that is available to us all. This will not be dealt with in the private sector, in the condominium sector. And in fact, what is happening is it's, it's grow, the, the, there's a huge growth of poverty and, 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 um, and homelessness. <laughs> I was trying to end it on an upswing. Well, there we go. It is an upswing. I mean, uh, there'll be others behind us. They're just over the hill. They're coming. The young are coming. The young people are coming. I can hear them now. <laughs> <laughs> Special thanks to today's storytellers, Kathy Crow and Beric German. Kathy's book is called Dying for a Home. Homeless Activists Speak Out. It was published by Between the Lines. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. We're relying on listeners like you to tell your friends about these stories. You can also listen to and download this podcast as well as transcripts from our podcast website, ryerson.ca slash ce slash I was here. On our website, you'll find a portrait series of each storyteller. These photos were taken by the talented Toronto-based photographer Jessica Blaine-Smith. Time for our credits. Today's podcast was made by Project Supervisor Darren Cooper. Audio engineer and producer Matt Rideout. Project Coordinator and Producer Melanie Santarosa. Rosa.
Our theme music was also created by Matt Rideout. Finally, a very special thank you to Programs for 50 Plus and Community Engagement at the G. Raymond Chang School of Continuing Education, Ryerson University, who supported us in our endeavor to give these storytellers a much-needed platform and audience. I'm Catherine Dunphy, and on behalf of all the storytellers, thanks for listening to I Was Here. You, you make a brilliant team. There we go. <laughs> <laughs>